Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning is from Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and the text will be on the screen as I read. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Josiah, or Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Uh, if I've never met you before, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. As you see, kids are being dismissed uh, for Children's Church. It's K through second grade. A little bit different for pickup. Uh, just a reminder to parents, uh, kids are going to be practicing some songs that they'll be singing uh, for Advent. And uh, they'll be doing that in the fellowship hall, so you can pick them back up right after the benediction instead of right before or after communion. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we just got started on a new sermon series through the book of Haggai. So the first uh, message was last week. It was all of chapter 1, and we have uh, three more weeks where we'll be going through the rest of the chapters, and that's just chapter 2. It just happens that uh, the way that the book is structured, there's four specific messages. One message is in chapter 1, the other three are in chapter 2, and that will get us through the whole season of Advent. Um, let's go ahead and pray and dive right into the text. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all your holy scripture to be written for our learning. So right now, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom to hear your word, to mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word, and that by patience and comfort of your word, we may embrace and hold on to the blessed hope of everlasting life, and yet you have given that to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever experienced something where your expectations from a certain experience, event, maybe relationship, were completely shattered? As I was answering that own question for myself, one uh, thing came up to me, for me, my memory of an experience that my family had when we were planning a trip to New York City. We were planning a trip to New York City because my wife loves New York City, loves Manhattan specifically. Her 40th birthday uh, it was coming up. I know she looks much younger than that, and uh, she certainly does, but she had 40th birthday a, a year ago, and we planned a trip to go to New York City, something that she had always wanted to do. 
Um, and we had high expectations because of how glorious Manhattan is, especially that time of year. You've seen it before in places, in movies like Home Alone and Elf. It's a magical place, you know, during the Christmas season. And we wanted to go and experience all of that, to go out to all, all the sights and uh, experience the rock cats and uh, look at the beautiful skyline on top of a observation deck, the whole thing. But if you remember uh, a year ago when this was taking place, there was a, a bit of a variant of the COVID-19 virus that started going around called Omicron that just started kind of just going, going off. And uh, we, I remember we were at a uh, basketball game for one of my uh, daughters and we just heard um, that a bunch of things in Manhattan were being canceled. Uh, the Rockettes, which we were, had tickets to go see them, uh, was canceled. And we have these, these memories, I don't know if you remember when, when COVID first started taking off, of like Manhattan just shutting down again. And we're like, well, we're about to fly there in 24 hours. Do we cancel our trip? Like, what do we do? Uh, and we decided, uh, I mean, it was a tough decision, we decided just to go for it, just uh, take the risk and see what happens. And even though that this one show was canceled, like maybe there'd be some other things that we would be able to, to do. And uh, one of the things we had scheduled is to go on top of an observation deck called uh, Summit One Vanderbilt. It's a beautiful observation deck of, of the city and the skyline of Manhattan. And we weren't able to get there on time. So we already had some schedule issues with traveling there as often happens to all of us when we travel and we fly. So we had to reschedule it that evening. And the problem is, is that the weather kept on getting worse and worse and worse. And so when we got there, I remember we had the long line and we had these tickets and it was really hard that you couldn't get your refund. And so, and it was really hard to reschedule it. We only had a short period of time that we were in Manhattan. So this was our only shot that we were able to go that evening and no other, other time. And it was, it was, it was a fascinating talking to the person who was checking us in because he was almost trying to talk us out of it because outside the weather was atrocious. I mean, it was just like all of Manhattan was just in a cloud. And I mean, on the first floor. So as you can imagine what it would be like on the top deck of this, we went up there and, and like we saw these pictures and you go on like the Google photos listing of this. This is a beautiful shot at Manhattan. And we got up there and all you could see was a white cloud on the other side of the window. You could see nothing. It was like they put a white blanket around and wrapped it around the observation deck. And we just thought at that point, I remember we were, we were just like, you know, descending, going back, and I was just salty. I was just like, this, this is what this trip is going to be like. And I'm a person that I don't like to spend a lot of money. A trip to Manhattan is a little costly. And so I was just, I was really, really upset that this like big 40th birthday celebration, this magical land of Manhattan during Christmas, the whole thing is just going to fall apart. And I was mad. I was salty. I was not doing well at that moment. Now, fortunately, the rest of the trip turned around uh, pretty quickly from kind of how it bottomed out in that uh, experience. But I don't know if you can relate to that, but just like it's, vacation is a great example. Like sometimes you have, like sometimes the best part of the vacation is, is anticipating the vacation, and then you go on the vacation, it's like, nah, it's all right. Or in this situation, especially how it started off, it was worse than we ever expected. It is a classic case of shattered expectations. And there could be other examples that maybe you're thinking of. You had high expectations for a new job that you took, but it ended up being worse than the last one. 
You maybe moved to a different house or a different city. You got high expectations of it being better than the previous place you lived, but it, it turns out that it wasn't. You have a new relationship, a new friendship, and it turns out to be a, a, a terrible relationship, right? And we have these same sets of expectations that we have in areas of faith as well. Maybe you have uh, expectation of starting a new ministry and it's going to be great and you're going to make disciples and see people converted or whatever and then you go through the routine of that and it's a tough ministry and it's hard plowing. Maybe you have experiences uh, going to a new local church and this is going to be the best church. that It's going to be like a church that you would find in the new heavens and new earth. It's just, it's just going to be high expectations and then you get around once again with a group of sinners and they just lower your expectations again, right? So that happens as well. Or seasons of suffering as well. That you might have expectations of yourself on how your faith will deal with a season of suffering or how maybe your friends and your church community will surround you in a specific way. But I've walked through suffering with a lot of folks to know that expectations are often not met in those seasons as well. Shattered expectations is a routine part of life. And shattered expectations is exactly what's happening in Haggai chapter 2 in these initial verses. In Haggai chapter 1, we were introduced to the storyline that this is God's people. They're coming back from this experience of exile. They were taken out of their land, taken out of their city, lived 70 years in a different place, and now there are groups of them that are starting to return to their land, return to their city, and rebuilding their faith, rebuilding their life, and literally rebuilding a temple that represented God's presence among them, and that's what they're experiencing right now. Last week, we considered a misplaced priorities that this people had and how God had to revive their uh, sense of priorities in their life. And today, we're going to look at how their expectations were being shattered and shaken by the Lord. So let's start diving into it. Look at, uh, well, before we get to chap uh, verse 3, like verse 1 and 2 just sets up the scene again. This is the second message, second of four messages that Haggai the prophet gives his people. It even gets really specific about when it happens. In our calendar, it would have happened on August 29th, or the last message, rather, was August 29th. This one is on October 17th of the same year, 520 B.C. So it gets very specific about when this message happened. The Lord, again, is speaking through his prophet Haggai, and he's speaking to a main political leader, the main religious leader, and to the people who both stayed in the land when the exile happened and those that are returning. To, so he's speaking to everybody that's there. And then in verse 3, this is what he says. God through his prophet. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? These questions are getting at the former glory of the old temple that stood in the place where they're trying to rebuild this new temple. And it was destroyed. They are, being, uh, they are rebuilding this new project, this new temple, and that's underway. And there's people there that are old enough to remember what that old temple looked like. And the questions are getting at the reality that, that there's agreement here. The old temple was more glorious than what they saw in front of them right now, that they have this memory of like, and these, these, this, this just broken heart that it didn't seem like it was going to return to its former glory, that the thing that they were about to build and that they're in the process of rebuilding just wasn't going to get back to what it used to be in its, in its glorious state. 
In Ezra chapter 3, it describes a little bit more about this scene. It says in 12 through 13 in chapter 3 of Ezra, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Look at that mixture. Some of the people that didn't see that glorious old temple, they're excited that this is being rebuilt, but those who saw it, their expectations were being shattered in that moment because it wasn't the same. Something had changed. It's not as glorious as it used to be. And the weeping, I would say, is not just about the physical beauty of a building that was lost. When you have associations with a building, maybe it was an old home that you grew up in, it's not just about the physical structure. It's all the memories that took place there. It's the nostalgia. It's all that stuff that was wrapped up. So it wasn't just the structure. It was the status that God's people had among the nations. It's what, as I mentioned last week, it's what the temple represented. It was God's presence among his people to be a blessing to the nations. And because he was there, they could have peace, not just from conflict from those around them, but peace in their souls and peace in their relationship and peace with their surroundings. That's what they experienced. And so some of the weeping had something to do with that more holistic picture of what was lost, and they're just wondering, are we ever going to get it back? If it's, is it ever going to be that good again? And they weren't so sure, which is why they were weeping. It reminds me of uh, other ways that this uh, took place um, and other examples. I, when I moved back to Minnesota from Chicago, I watched this documentary on TPT called Lost Twin Cities. It's an excellent uh, documentary about the history of the Twin Cities, and it tells the, the history of the Twin Cities through different physical structures and things that we used to have in the Twin Cities that have been lost. There's a bunch of different examples like streetcars, but the one uh, example that I want to highlight right now is a, a building uh, that was in downtown Minneapolis called the Metropolitan Building in downtown Minneapolis. It was built, I think we have a picture of it here, it was built in 1890 and considered one of the most beautiful structures to ever stand in Minneapolis. It's this Romanesque 12-story building that stood made out of granite, and they got some red sandstone from Lake Superior to build this building. Uh, this picture right here specifically is from 1960 when it stood. You can tell by the cars about what era it would have been from, right? So that was a building. And as you can guess, it's not there anymore. They tore that building down in 1961, not because it was in bad condition, it was actually well-occupied and in great condition. The only reason they tore it down is they had this grand vision of urban renewal uh, that they were under, going underway, and they just said that that building wasn't a part of that urban renewal plan. So they tore it down. So what stands in its place? Here's a side-by-side -side of what's going on there right now. So that's the new building. Now, you might say to yourself, you know, I kind of like the new building. And it's okay. You can be wrong here. It's a safe place. <laughs> like, usually I can see the other perspective, but like, if you think that building on the right uh, is better, you're objectively wrong. That is not a better-looking building. That's, a, that's, that's an okay-looking building, but when you see what it replaced, you would say that former one was much more glorious than the one that stood there right now. And since they're, they're, they were stored down in the 60s, there may be people that still living in the Twin Cities today that might remember 
this building. They might be old, but they might remember where it, where it stood and what it looked like and, and probably remembered this whole ordeal that took place. And in fact, this is one of the reasons that, that the Twin Cities now has such good uh, like historical preservation of our properties right now because when this happened, in hindsight, it was classic one of those situations like, what were we thinking? What were we thinking? We're not going to build a building like that anymore. That doesn't happen. And we lost it. And there's a sense that that's what's going on here. And it's not just about the beauty of a physical structure. When they thought about that former temple, it was everything associated with, with what that represented in the city of Jerusalem and for God's people, that it was lost. And the way that they pictured the new one was the equivalent of maybe how that other building came across to you right now. It just isn't the same. And I don't think, and they, they're wrestling with, will it ever be as glorious as it once was? This is a classic case of shattered expectations. So how does the Lord respond to his people, and how does he say to them? Look at Haggai chapter 2, 4 through 5, and he goes through the list of these leaders again, but, but look what he says to him. He says, be strong, Zerubbabel. That's the political real, uh, leader. He says, be strong, Joshua. That's the priest, the religious leader. And then he says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Be strong is a common phrase in Scripture, and it's often used for God's people to revive their sense of determination and courage. Be strong means get your determination and courage back in proper order. And here it's directed towards that political, religious leader as well of all God's people that are back in this land. And it's not just an empty pep talk. See what it's grounded in. It says, for, this is the reason why you should be strong, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. I am with you. That's Emmanuel, a word for God that means God with us, telling God's people that he hasn't changed. I am still God with you. I am still with you. I haven't abandoned you. Be strong. Be, be courageous because I am still with you. Verse 5 continues with the Lord saying, This is what I covenanted it with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. In other words, God reminds them of his commitment. He says, I rescued you out of Egypt from slavery, and I am your God. You are my people, and that has not changed. The commitment, the promises that I made to you then stand firm to this day, and I told you I would not leave or forsake you. I am still with you in this moment, so therefore be strong and courageous. Commit yourself to this rebuilding project and rebuilding your faith as well. Even though right now you're discouraged and you cannot wrap your mind around how could this ever be like it was. This seems like such a sense of loss. But he reminds them, there's a lot of things that have changed to these people and what they experienced. But the one thing that has not changed is God's commitment to his promises and his commitment to be with us no matter what. All the other things shattered their expectations, but that is the changelessness of God that continues to be consistent when everything else around us seems to be falling apart and can't be brought back to what it once was. That's what God is telling them in that moment. And God is also not only reassuring them of who he is and his promises to them, he's about to shake up 
their expectations of what is going to come in the future. Look at chapter uh, 2 again, 6 through 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And verse 9 says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in that place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So God is going to shake up everything. Notice how comprehensive this shakeup is going to be. He says it's the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, everything. And specifically, the Lord is going to shake up other nations. And what is going to come about with that shakeup? The desire by all nations will come. Now, this is a very popular verse that is often sung about in Advent and during Christmas. And many people see in this verse a reference that the author intended to uh, the Messiah who is going to come, uh, who is fulfilled in Christ, who is the desire of nations. It's a common understanding of that verse. Yet, is that the reference here? And this is honestly one of those verses that, if you remember the previous sermon series, could have made it to the out-of-context sermon series. Uh, so I'm not going to quite ruin all your Christmas songs, so bear with me here, okay? All right. So what is happening in this verse? Did the, did the author who wrote this down, the, and this is most likely the voice of the prophet Haggai here, is that what he intended us to understand this verse to be? And verse 8 is the clue of what the desire of nations is. It's the silver and the gold that God is going to shake out of other nations, and that, that that wealth is what he's going to use to pour in and finance the rebuilding effort of the temple. So God is going to use this wealth to rebuild a temple that's going to be more glorious than the old one. And remember, this is why it's important. This is a people, they're under the rule of another nation. They're not their own nation yet, even though they were able to return to this land. And also, they just got out of exile. It's not this is a nation sitting on a bunch of wealth. You've you got to see it from their perspective. When they're thinking about this rebuilding effort, that's one of the things that, that, that the accountants in ancient Israel were thinking of. Like, how are we going to finance this? We literally don't have the, the, the resources to even get close to what it used to be. But then God reminds them that it is not other nations that are in charge and own these things. It is he that owns all these things. Notice in the, in the verses when he talks about in verse 8, he says, the silver is who? It's mine. The gold is mine. God owns everything. And if he wants to shake up the wealth of nations to finance this rebuilding effort, he can and he is going to do that. So if that's what the desire of nations is, does this mean that we can't sing these songs anymore that refer to the desire of nations? You just sang one today. Does that mean we've got to stop doing that? I'm going to unpack this a little bit more uh, in the conclusion of this message. But let me just say for now that I think it can still serve as a wonderful analogy for who Christ is by tying in other themes of rich scripture it's one of those classic cases that the desire of nations as a title for Christ is theologically true. This is just the wrong verse for it. But we'll get to it in a little bit, okay? So what will be the end result of God shaking up the nations? Well, the present temple, 
will be greater than the former one, he says. And more than that, it represents all that the, the temple is, is tying together theologically. Remember, the temple isn't just a physical structure, but it's a visible indicator of God's relationship with his people. And so when the temple was destroyed, it was because God's people had shipwrecked their faith, and the temple showed that. And when they were exiled out of the land, it was, it was, it was to show that the distance from God's presence was now greater among God's people because their faith was not where it was supposed to be, and they had turned their back on the Lord. So that's why the temple was destroyed. But then verse 9 reminds God's people that the temple is going to be rebuilt and restored in such a way that it's going to be even more glorious and peace will return to the land. And again, that's a holistic peace. It's not just, a, uh, it's not just conflict ceasing. It's peace with God. It's peace with one another. It's peace with their surroundings. That, that it's, it's shalom. It's peace in a holistic sense that everything is put back in its proper place as it ought to be and as, as it ought to function. And the temple that's going to be rebuilt is going to not only literally be rebuilt, but all those other things are going to be rebuilt with it. So, how was this promise fulfilled? The text doesn't say. There's a very specific way in the lifetime of God's people that were hearing this that it was fulfilled in their lifetime. Uh, the, the, the nations uh, did finance the rebuilding of this temple. But when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament says that there's a greater and better way that this was fulfilled. And for that, we need to go to the book of Hebrews because Hebrews quotes uh, a verse from our passage today in Haggai. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 28. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warmed them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, and here's the quote, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what, had, what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So the author of Hebrews is comparing the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, the old commitment promises to God people in the Old Testament, with the New Covenant that God's people uh, have in Christ. And if you're listening to these verses, notice that he's employing this lesser to greater argument. He's, he's warning them uh, of the voice of God when it came on earth. And this is likely a reference to God's voice speaking from Mount Sinai, which is the story when God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. And he says, that happened and the earth shook when he spoke. But now he's speaking from heaven, the author says. God is speaking from heaven in an even greater way. And the, the way that the author of Hebrews talks about God speaking from heaven, it's always through his son. You go back to chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, and he says that God is speaking a greater way through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He goes on to say the son of God is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word and purifying his people from his sins. That's how God is speaking in a mighty and powerful way right now, and it's a greater way because he's speaking and shaking things up from heaven through his son, a greater way than he ever did through Sinai. And so the implications of that is when God's people ignored God's voice in Sinai, there were consequences then how much more will that happen 
if we ignore God's voice when he speaks through his son. That's part of the argument he's establishing. In other words, this text is getting us and all of God's people to ask, did you receive God's new covenant in Christ? And if you did, and he's clearly declared who he is in a mighty way through Jesus, then you should receive that word with the reverence and worship that it deserves. So that's what he's establishing. But then the author of Hebrews goes on to reference Haggai. He says, once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. And again, he's applying that phrase to this new covenant that God is shaking things up in Jesus Christ. He has done so at his first coming through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Yet God is not done. He's still shaking things up. He's still uniting and renewing all things in Jesus Christ. And verse 27 says that in Christ, God is removing the things that can be shaken so the things that cannot be shaken, the things that are worthwhile and eternal, will remain forever and ever and ever. God is dramatically shaking, transforming, and renewing all things in Jesus Christ until the Lord comes again. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. And then he draws this conclusion in verse 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this is the argument being made here. So in Christ, we have a greater fulfillment of what Haggai was talking about. Jesus is the true and better temple. He's Emmanuel, truly God with us, God in the flesh, and he raises from the dead. He ascended into the heaven, and he still continues to be with his people as he's poured out his spirit on each and every person here who confesses Jesus, that God is with you in a greater way that the people of Haggai would never have anticipated that this glorious presence is with us in such an intimate and radical way because Jesus is the true and better temple. He's a more glorious fulfillment. He is the one through his death and resurrection that grants everlasting peace. He's greater than any earthly treasure. And in the last days, he will be the true desire of nations. In those days, it's not gold and silver that all the nations will seek, but Christ as the true and everlasting treasure of heaven, as it says in Revelation 9, 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. That's the nations declaring who their treasure is, and it's Jesus Christ, the desire of nations. So sing that verse, brothers and sisters. It is theologically true and a beautiful analogy of who Christ is. Let me conclude with this story to kind of bring it back down to, to earth here a little bit. One of the best ways to keep your expectations in their proper place is knowing and experiencing something that so much exceeds your expectations that everything else in life kind of deserves a shoulder shrug. Like, meh, that's all right. But man, what I experienced over here, this was truly mind-blowing. This truly, like I had high expectations, and this, in Christ's case, eternally exceeded them. Think about heaven. You'll be raised from the dead, new capacities, no sin interfering with your relationship with the Lord anymore. 
But in that moment, it's not that you will get to a point that you would truly wrap your mind around all of who Christ is and his eternal glory. He's eternal. He's infinite. You will spend everlasting days growing your capacities to know and treasure Christ forever and ever and ever in a way that your expectations every moment of eternally, eternity will continue to be exceeded. Christ will always exceed your expectations forever, forever and ever. You'll never reach a point of boredom or like, I'm over this. That next day, you will continue to be blown away by Christ's glory forever and ever and ever. And when you really know that, there are things in this life that it maybe just properly orders your expectations in a way that like other things in life are not necessarily boring, but put in their proper place. Now, this is a way that uh, this week I, I saw this video floating around that, that really illustrated this quite well. And it was an interview that was happening with the head coach of the Boston Celtics. He was having this press conference. Maybe some of you saw this. And I thought this is a great way of illustrating this, especially for Christmas. So there, there, a reporter is asking him a bunch of questions. And one of the questions the reporter asked, she asked him this. Did you get a chance to meet with the royal family? And if not... What was it like having them there in the building? And the video doesn't describe quite the context, but you get enough from the question to know what's going on, that he had an opportunity to run into the royal family, and if not run into them, that he could just, just feel their presence in the building, right? And she was just like, you could tell where her expectations were, right? That the royal, ooh, the royal family, right? Way up here, and she was trying to see, like, just assuming he feels the same way. So he was asking the head coach questions uh, about that, the head coach of the Celtics. So how does the coach respond? So remember the question, did you get a chance to meet with the royal family? And if not, what was it like having them in the building? And his response was, in a question form, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph? And he was serious. He was like serious, serious. Like he wasn't cracking a joke. And the reporter didn't know what to do with that. She kind of laughed awkwardly. And she clarifies, no, 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 the, the prince and princess of Wales. And Coach Joe, the Celtics coach, responds, oh, no, uh, I did not. I'm only familiar with one royal family. I, I don't know much about this one. Dead serious. Here's dead serious. Now, sometimes, like, like Christians can do analogies like this, and it's kind of hokey and it doesn't work, right? So if, like, you ask a Christian, you're like, what's your favorite TV series, right? Something like that. Have you seen the new Star Wars TV series? It's great. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. I only watch God is Not Dead. And it's like, well, there it doesn't work because God is Not Dead is a terrible movie <laughs> and there's so much better ones to watch, right? So it just doesn't work. But here, it works. This royal family compared to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, yeah, they're better. Like, objectively so, because Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the King of heaven and earth, the Prince of Peace, the Emmanuel, the desire of nations. Yeah, that royal family, nothing, not a big deal. Shoulder shrug, right? Because his expectations are here. It's not that he can't appreciate who these people are or kind of culturally what was going on there. It's just like it was another argument of greater to lesser. This is so much greater. This is so much better. And one of the things I think about our own earthly expectations is they could be properly ordered if we can just get more and more blown away each day by grace and through the forgiveness of Christ, by who we have, the gospel through the death and resurrection, access to the royalty of heaven, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, Emmanuel, forever and ever and ever. 
and your expectations will never be shattered by him. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Amen.